When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sacred Text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sacred Text. Chapter 5. Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Harry spun faster and faster, elbows tucked tightly to his sides, blurred fireplaces flashing past him until he started to feel sick and closed his eyes. I'm Matt Potts. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tech-Kyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A couple of announcements before we hear more from Casper. One is that his project, The Nearness, has launched. Registration is closed, but you can still find out more about it at thenearness.coop and maybe sign up for our wait list, learn more. We also have a summer camp next summer that's on sale. Casper Turkyle and I are going to be doing a Sound of Music sing-along. There's going to be a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text live show. It is going to be so much fun. And if you are coming to camp, Please bring, if you can, some dressing up item for the Sound of Music sing-along. So if you want to explore your inner baroness, or if you want to bring your whistle and play the Navy captain, whatever you want. And if there's nothing left, just bring brown paper package and some string, and you'll fit right in. (laughs) Our last announcement is our Every Flavored Bean for this week. Matt, you had a really good idea for today's. Well, in today's chapter, there's some hair commentary <laughs> and uh, and maybe and some hair choices, some hair cut choices. And so I thought we might discuss what each of our respective best bad haircuts has been. Cannot wait. So everyone, you've already heard him talk, but we have a special guest today, the wonderful Casper Turkile, author of The Power of Ritual, co-founder of The Nearness and Sacred Design Lab, one of my best friends in the whole world. I did that in reverse order of importance. (laughs) Casper, you have a story for us on the theme of healing. 
What story do you have? I do. And thank you so much for having me back, especially with my favorite book, The Goblet of Fire. So I am thrilled to be here. So my story is one that is inspired by a recent experience, which was my sister has moved to California, which is very exciting to be with her girlfriend who's doing a postdoc out there. And they were planning a big trip. They were going to cycle from San Francisco down to LA. And they were camping along the way. You know, it's a big trip. It's like two weeks on a bike. But They were coming to LA and they needed a place to stay and they didn't have one. So I put on my Instagram, does anyone have, you know, a spare couch or a spare bedroom? My sister and her girlfriend are going to be there. And my friend Rachel, not her real name, reached out to me and said, sure, I have a place to stay. So I connected them. And a few days later, I got a picture of Rachel and her kid who was exploring, you know, their gender and my sister and her girlfriend all around a table. And... What I want to say is that photo was not just a lovely photo of four people sharing a meal together, but was an embodiment of healing in so many different ways. I had known Rachel professionally in a previous job. We then worked together and had a very, very difficult experience together, which ended badly. Um, I won't go into the specifics of it, but it, it was one of those professional experiences where you're like, oh God, that relationship is broken and I can never see that person again. And once we both left that job, it just really sat with me. It was painful every time I thought about it. It was just, I felt icky about my role in it, just so many layers. And so I wrote to her, I wrote an email and I said, Rachel, please ignore this email if you don't want to engage, but I want to apologize for what I did. And I wish we had a relationship again because I really like you and I'm really sorry for what happened. And Rachel wrote back the most, it's, gosh, still makes me emotional. Like she wrote back the most generous response and said, Casper, I've been hoping that you would send this email. I feel the same way. Let's find a time to talk. And we had maybe two or three conversations over the next few months. And it was one of those experiences where like, I didn't know that it could feel so good to like rebuild a relationship or retrieve a relationship. It really felt like that I thought was lost, that I thought was over. And so we've spoken on the phone a number of times and we've, you know, follow each other on Instagram again and like our lives are connected again. And here she is sending me this photo of her hosting my sister out of the just goodness of her heart. And she is saying thank you because it was so important for her kid to see this like happy lesbian couple living their best lives. And I guess why I wanted to tell this story is because I, I want to know, does something that was broken and mended Like, is it even more precious? Is it even stronger? Is it even more beautiful than what it was in the first place? And I hesitate to ask that question because I don't want to valorize hurt or brokenness or like, you need to suffer before you can experience the real thing. That's not what I want to do. But if we assume that as human beings, we're going to be hurt and we're going to hurt others one way or another without intending to, just by the simple fact of being alive, is there something in the healing or the healed relationships that is even more beautiful than what it was before. Casper, that's a really beautiful story. Thank you for it. And I'm so glad that your sister and her girlfriend were able to visit with Rachel and their child. I mean, I I hesitate to do so, but I have to bring in Etymology Corner (laughs) early in the episode. The the word healing comes from ancient words or older words that come from this idea of wholeness, Mm. right? And so like healing means restored to wholeness. But I don't know if I like that that definition because that implies that we are somehow complete before broken mm. 
and then we have to be restored to some completion rather than an idea of what it means to be a human is just always in process. Mm. Like, it's not like I'm complete one moment and then broken and have to be restored to what I was, but to think about your relationship with Rachel as one that was always in process mm. and and ha- and went through this this difficult period and, and then continued on to another strong place. So it wasn't like something, you know what I mean? Like, like the healing was actually the achievement of something new rather than the replacement of something lost, right? And in which case, without valorizing hurt, I think we can say the thing that you gained is stronger and deeper mm. because the relationship was actually the two of you working it out together, right? And so like, it's not like something, the healing was actually the the finding something new rather than restoring something old. I like that so much, Matt. And it's kind of counterintuitive to me because usually I'm like, we must leave linear thinking behind and return to the cycle and the circle and the, you know, the wholeness. Yeah. But in this case, it's actually the reverse because it's, if if we just get stuck at looking at how it was now with improvements or with repair, we're not seeing where it has gone. Like that, there's something new that's come in that wasn't there before. It's more like a direction of travel. Like we're discovering new places along the road of the relationship because of what we've experienced and and how we've tended to it, both of us in, in one way or another. That's helpful. Well, Casper and Matt, I'm so excited to explore more of these themes of healing in our conversation. But first, should we remind people what happens in the chapter? I can babble for 30 seconds in a roughly Harry Potter themed way. In a way. non-linear and yet linear and healed way. Yes, that's right. Matt, on your mark, get set, go. So Harry arrives at the at the burrow and then the the brothers are there and they're like the twins and they're like, oh, did he eat it? Did he eat it? And then Arthur comes back and Arthur's like, yes, he ate it. What did you get, make, give that muggle boy? And they're like, he deserved it. He was a bully. And there's a big the argument. And Arthur's like, no, he didn't. And then uh, Molly comes in and says, what are you talking about? And then and gets very upset and the trio goes upstairs and they talk a little bit and then they go back down to help out with dinner and they and there's too many people for dinner and, and Molly is still very frustrated and they go out and the tables are fighting and then they talk a bit and and they talk about the Quidditch World Cup and the teams that are good and they say, oh, yes, Sirius, I, I didn't hear from Sirius. As expert. I had like a a book's worth of comfort with the 30-second recaps. And then like I've gone back to the old problem of like spending way too much time in the first three pages. Yeah, you'll find it again. Vanessa, can I count you in? Yes, please. I would be honored. Three, two, one, go. So the twins come back and Molly is furious and they want to start with Wizard Weasley's and Molly is like, can't you just get OWLs and work at the Ministry of Magic and have security? And Percy is really obsessed with with Cauldron Bottoms and Hermione and Ginny are there and the owl has been named Pigwidgeon and Harry is going to stay with Ron up in, upstairs with the twins and it's going to be chaos and they're going to go to the Quidditch World Cup and Scotland and England really lost, but Ireland is going to be in the Quidditch World Cup and that's very exciting. That was excellent detail. I feel like you really, really rounded out, filled in the, filled in the chapter. Thank you. I tried. Casper, are you ready to be professional, <laughs> calm and steady, uh, thorough? All of those are my middle names. <laughs> On your mark, get set, go. I knew it was a great match, but we suffered heavy losses. Uh, the Luxembourg team are really 
stellar from a small country. How do they produce so many dragon-sized humans playing Quidditch? I don't know. Uh, I'm just glad we're not the Welsh team, honestly, because, you know, they were hammered beyond belief, absolutely crucified. Uh, and here in Scotland, you know, we're, we're still a young team. We've only just started playing Quidditch. Uh, electricity only just made it north of the border last year. So uh, I feel pretty good, even despite the loss. I feel like you really had it until the last two seconds there. Can you do a Welsh? I thought you were going to switch to Welsh and be the Welsh team also. Like it was a joint press conference? That, that, that was all Scottish. My Welsh is most suspect. I feel like the most important part of healing in this chapter actually happens a little bit off the page, right? We didn't see it, but Mr. Weasley restored Dudley's tongue. We, mm. you know, He comes back and he's, I was able to fix the tongue. And I was just thinking about the the times in which you can physically heal from something and yet not emotionally or psychologically heal. Dudley's tongue, you know, we we don't have all the information, but we get the feeling that it was restored, that it wasn't like he needs stitches or like a prolonged healing process, but that it was actually like a true restoration. And yet this kid just gets more and more traumatized by the magical world. And Arthur says that, right? He says, Hmm. I spend my whole career trying to have good relations across muggle and magical people. And like, you all just ruin that. (laughs) And so it got me thinking about, I guess, these two different components of healing. One is how you can have emotional scars, even when you don't have physical scars from something physical that happens to you. And two is, you know, healing across difference and across past traumas and wrongdoings. Well, and also across generations. That That's what you're getting at. That really struck me as well, which is like, you know, we, we've seen Petunia really reject the wizarding world. And here's another example that's just going to strengthen that story. And so there's the individual kind of incident, but then the, it, it compounds this narrative from both sides, right? Like how stupid are these muggles, say the twins, like we, you know, we just dropped it. We didn't give it to him, blah, 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 blah. And on the other side, from the muggle side, it's like, these people are dangerous and they want to hurt our children. And so, yeah, it feels like it's easy to just look at it as a, as a small incident, but with that bigger perspective, it's a whole history of unhealed, damaged relationships. Right. It's just a wound that keeps being opened exactly. for Petunia. Yeah, I think that thinking about healing in multiple levels is really important because we think about I mean, I had this whole thing after Casper's story where I talked about, you know, it's not restoration, it's arriving at something new, but like you know, I broke my foot last fall. Mm. Like, I, I just needed my foot to not be broken. Like, that's that's one definition of healing, which is straightforward. And in this sense, Arthur did, quote-unquote, heal Dudley by getting his tongue back to normal size, right? Like, restoring it to what it was. But the new situation, which has arrived in the wake of that, has not is not stronger, right? That's what you're saying, Vanessa, obviously. And so, like, I think that there's a way that healing can be deceptive, mm. right? Like, we can have, like, the the surface things restored, especially after trauma, like superficial or maybe like physical or material things replaced or restored, but relationships or emotions are still deeply broken, which is why the metaphorical wound you named, Vanessa, can keep opening and opening, right? Even though the physical one might be fully fully closed. And so, yeah, Casper, I think you're exactly right. Like this action has only further deepened like the wounds of Petunia's original rejection, right? And so that there's not a healing in in that sense, even though Arthur has done his best in this moment. And I often feel like the people who weren't wounded have this expectation around healing of like, what? You're better, right? Like, 
move on. I, you know, I paid for you to get your car fixed. I, whatever it is, you know, your tongue is back where it belongs. That's not what Arthur is saying, but we all know that's not how you experience it. Right, Matt? Even, I would imagine even if your foot is totally healed and you have no residual pain from it, you're going to play basketball with Danny a little bit differently, (laughs) right? Like you're going to be more careful. So it did change you. Well, the the other thing that feels different from the story I shared was that the person who is doing the healing was not the person who caused the pain, right? Like right. the twins drop the sweet and it's Arthur who's fixing the problem. And I'm curious, like if the twins had been there and Arthur had said like, well, first of all, if he trusted his son's magic to be good enough to like undo the pain <laughs> that they were causing. But but if it had been them, like I wonder if this situation would have been different or if the if the twins would have looked at it differently because I that that feels to be a really important part of the picture is like we're externalizing the healing rather than the yeah. healing happening between the two parties yeah. where the hurt originally happened. I mean, I have a question about the twins in general, which mm. is, you know, they say laughter is the best medicine. Mm. And I think, you know, by the time we get to book six and seven, we really applaud what the twins are up to, right? They are up to like a radical form of, of dislodging right. authority. They're wonderful in their sort of political ways of using humor and pranks to mock umbrage and to make fun of Voldemort, right? Like they're really powerful in that way. And yet at this point in their development, what they're up to is just mean. And yes, they think that they are engaging in like a power reshaping, right? They say to Arthur, we didn't engorge Dudley's tongue because he's on a diet. We did it because he's a jerk to Harry. And so they see it as this, you know, fighting the power. But it's also mean and bullying. And I am someone who's very skeptical of pranks, right? Like pranks is just exploiting other people for being trusting, in my <laughs> opinion. And I think that there are some pranks that can be lovingly done, but for the most part, I find them to actually be actively dismantling other people's sense of trust and other people's goodness. And so I'm wondering how you all feel about the twins in their genuine attempts at healing through disruption later in the books and where they are in their journey now. Are they on this journey toward Umbridge or is this just a huge mistake? The thing I respect about the twins is that they start their magical explorations on themselves. So they're not giving any toffees or any magical things to anyone, you know, that they haven't tested in their own bodies first. And so to some extent, I'm like, they know that this is totally reversible, you know, because they've had to reverse it in themselves one way or another. So I can I can see that their perception of what lasting damage is is minimal because they're like, oh, right. you know, you just undo it and then you wipe their memories clean. No biggie, right? Like, it's all good. And on the one hand, like, that is compelling, right? Like, if literally they don't remember anything from that experience and... Like, for a 16-year-old's reasoning, I can see the rationale. And you do need to go through a period of failure before you get to success when you're creating something new. So that feels like a separate kind of question from this particular piece where it's like, we're doing it because he's a jerk and we want to get back at him. Like, this isn't playing a practical joke. It is mean-spirited. And they acknowledge it, but they're saying it's okay because he started it. So it feels like there's a second layer of reasoning that they're adding on to just the experimental joke stuff, which is we want to get Dudley back for everything that he's done. So I don't know. Yeah, it's not, it's, it doesn't paint them well. I've, I agree. 
Yeah, I think all that's right. But I think the one thing that I do want to hold on to from your original comment, Vanessa, was like, the, what's the link between the current, I think, unanimously like condemnable behavior <laughs> that they're involved in now and what they do get involved in later? Because I think one thing that, that really struck me while reading the last chapter and this chapter side by side was just like the difference in these two houses, right? Like the Dursleys is, you know, the famous first line of the the series was just normal, so normal. The borough is like no day is ever the same as the day before. Everything is new. Everything is different. Part of what's driving that is Fred and George, and it obviously irritates Molly and others in the house. But I think there is this idea in Fred and George, which is like the normal can be oppressive. Like the 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 what you expect every day, it's okay to push those boundaries. And we actually have to push those boundaries. And they're pushing those boundaries in a cruel way now with Dudley, obviously. But I think there is some link between their just aversion to any kind of stricture and what they are going to do later on in the books. And it's also like the, the target of their pranks in this house it's Percy mostly because yeah. Percy is the one who is the most kind of quote unquote normal or the one who is aspiring towards the kind of constraint and stricture that we see in the Dursley's house. Whereas they're more playful with others in the house. Again, that's not to apologize for any of their behavior too much, but I think the link that you were asking about Vanessa, I think it's there even in these early moments uh, that we see them in, in the borough. I love you pointing that out that it's whenever anyone's, normalcy becomes oppressive seeming to them. They're like, nope, nope, don't, you can't do it. But it is, I mean, like they send Percy poo. That's not nice. Well, I, I want to take it beyond Percy because I think Percy absolutely is it, but I think it's Molly. Molly is really yes. the one who is pushing them to take this outside of the house because it's not welcome inside the house. I mean, they had been building a business. They've got all of these subscriptions. She's taken them and destroyed, uh, uh, you know, their whole kind of inventory and distribution system. And so I wonder if Molly had reacted differently, whether they would have gone to this length. I, I don't think they're experimenting. Again, I, I want to draw the line. I think there's a retribution thing and a testing thing. But at least on the testing side, I, I think it's Molly's reaction that is pushing them underground in a way that, maybe makes them better joke makers and, and rule breakers and all the things that we're going to appreciate later on. But I, I think Percy is the easy hit here. I'm team Percy, as you know. Like, he is writing an important report that no one is appreciating. <laughs> and you want to talk about healing? He is trying to standardize a system of international cooperation, which avoids the breaking of relationships that then need healing. Like, he's the pre-healing supreme master. All hail team Percy. Okay, hold on. Sorry. That was two very different points, and I disagree with you on both of them. And so <laughs> I was going to go the opposite direction with Molly, that she is the victim of the pranks. Ooh. She's like trying to cook dinner for 11 people, and she picks up a wand. And you know that while cooking, if you have onions and potatoes and things are hot, and like it, kitchens are not safe places— and you pick up a freaking magic, a, a freaking trick wand. That is annoying. She's being punked in her own house all the time. So annoying. And then Percy, this is the first time it occurred to me, and we could move this to critical corner, but there's something xenophobic to me about the way that he says some of these international cauldrons that are coming in are substandard and like very English about it. Definitely. Like yeah. the ones that we make are good, but as soon as they come from abroad. And so, yes, he's like being preventative, but 
in the twins' defense, he's also trying to keep other, like, international cauldrons out of his country. And so, again, God, this is so complicated. Like, Fred and George are trying to constantly blow that up. Percy's trying to constantly restore order. Too much of either is bad. Chaos. So can I be the classic middle child since mom and dad? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in between, uh, like, the two of you on Molly. I feel for Molly. I'm on Molly's side to a degree. But also, like, when she goes on and on about, you know, why can't they just, like, study for their owls like Bill and Charlie? Why can't they follow this kind of standard path towards a particular kind of wizarding success? Like, everything we've just said about Fred and George is they recoil against that. They resist that. And it may be the way that she needs to nurture them is towards something else. Like their future is not in the Ministry of Magic, it's towards something else, right? And so like I agree. So with I'm that. on Molly's side. They need she needs to not be pranked where there's knives and fire. But I also think in those comments, she's really trying to push them towards exactly the kind of standard future that these two children in particular are resisting and it might be better for her to nurture them towards something else. Well, now let me come on to Team Molly because I'm also suddenly realizing that the twins would not be trying this if they didn't fundamentally believe in the power of healing because they have experienced hurt and repair so often that they're willing to experiment with real danger because they fundamentally trust the capacity of their parents to heal them if they need to. Mm. And so there is something that I'm appreciating about Molly, I guess, that Yes, she's kind of, you know, I I don't want to say all smoke, no fire, because she, she, there's certainly fire later in the books, right, that we really get to see. But but there is a safety, clearly, a psychological safety, a physical safety that the twins experience that let them even be willing to to try. I love that. I love that so much. And you only really feel comfortable rebelling against your family to this degree if you're, A, willing to leave them behind, which we know the twins are not. Or B, if you know that, like, no, kind of no matter what you do, they're going to forgive you. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing, Vanessa. And I think there's a poignancy because we know what's going to happen with this family, right? Like, right. I think there is, like, a testing with Fred and George among folks who they trust to forgive them, right? Which is which is a form of exploitation to a degree, right? And manipulation. They know they're going to be forgiven, so they're willing to take risks. But there's going to be a point at which Percy like becomes estranged in a, what feels like for a very long time. I mean, the, the relation between Percy and the twins is resolved only very briefly and at the last second. And maybe, you know, on some readings far too late, I, I think that it shows that this kind of distrust, which you're right, Vanessa is there, like this assumption that these bonds are so strong, we will be forgiven for these pranks is not a safe assumption for them to make. And it's one that they run afoul of for much of the rest of the series, as we're going to see. I mean, and one of the things about pranks is that one of the things that you have to calculate is who you're willing to leave behind, right? Like, they don't want to be restored with umbrage later. They're just willing to piss her off. And so there, there's this risk assessment of, I'm okay with certain relationships not being healed and just being like, and bye, I've destroyed something and we're all better off for it. And that that's that's just a calculation with up being alive and, you know, that Fred and George are really, they're courting situations in which they are going to have to consistently make those calculations. I do think that calculation is happening and it's being miscalculated by Bill and Charlie. 
because they are home very infrequently, right? We know that um, Bill is traveling widely. Charlie is also far away. Like, they're, they're both far away from home. And I think what we're seeing in this chapter is that classic situation of you're returning home with your siblings, and within a few hours, you're back to the dynamics of when everyone was a, like, 10-year-old. And it's really destructive, because Bill and Charlie are playing a sort of, like, I don't know, hit the tables against each other outside Percy's window game. And, like... The guy is working. Yes, he's being a bit of a prick about it. But, like, they keep pushing. They keep pushing on it. And, like, I get why Percy is like, I am a freaking done with you all. Like, I can't work. No one respects what I care about. No one's interested in what I'm interested in. And, like, you know, I think that reaction of being kind of, like, lording it over everyone and I know something that you don't is because, like, that's the only way he can be in the conversation to some extent. I don't want to overly sugarcoat it. But what, I, what I'm what i trying to point to is that he gets stuck into a dynamic where there is no space for who he actually is and what he's actually interested in. And the older brothers are playing this prank outside his window. It just feels like there's a miscalculation of the prank in that scene, which just keeps them separate as brothers in a, in a way that was unnecessary. It does feel like the way that a lot of this family bonds is by ganging up on Percy or, you know, at least talking talking poorly about him behind his back. And I, he doesn't need to leave in the way that he does, but it also strikes me as a little bit inevitable that it happened. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, there's something about the, one of the phrases you just used, Casper, about how they don't care about the things he cares about. Hmm. Like, it's, it's almost a, a vicious cycle because you can see him trying to say, this is important. This is important what I'm doing. He's actually trying to get them yeah. to recognize that his work is meaningful. But the work that he describes looks even less important to them. So, like, every attempt to look important <laughs> makes him feel less important, which makes him want to look more important, which yeah. makes him feel less important. And it just, like, he spins himself into a exclusion. And then he, like, projects all of this, like, love and respect onto Mr. Crouch, who, like, doesn't even know his name. Like, yeah. I just feel so bad for him. Because he wants, like, but I think you're right. I think it's because he wants everyone else to, in the family to think that he's important, like, to value what he's, yes. what he's working on. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. The moment that really struck me on that theme of healing when the when the older brothers are playing that weird game with the floating tables is that one of the table legs comes off and then they repair it with a magical charm takes no effort done in a second. The thing that struck me was the difference between repair and heal. And is healing inherently self-generating in some way? Like, is it only possible within a system or a being that's alive rather than repair, which is kind of done to you by an outside agent? Like, I was suddenly interested in that difference. Because we wouldn't say the table healed. Right, right. We, we don't think of inanimate or inorganic matter as having healing, right? So, like, healing has to have something to do with with life, with being alive. I spent a, like a summer during my MDiv in Southern Africa in the small country of Lesotho. And in Susutu, the, the local language, when something is difficult to fix or can't be fixed, like if you're trying to repair a car engine or something, the way it's phrased in Susutu, at least this was told to me when I was there, would be to say, the engine refuses to be fixed. I love that. But isn't that how it feels? Yeah. Like, that's how it feels. Like when you like, when you're trying to repair something, right? And you feel like you know how it ought to work like your computer or like, you know, something or like a copier or whatever thing you're trying in your, in my, I'll speak for myself, like in expertise to repair. I'm like, why are you refusing <laughs> to be fixed, right? This is willful. You are making a choice against me. Why can't we work together on this? Well, that's so interesting to me because it speaks to how we look out at the world, right? I think language reveals how we see the world and, and can shape it too. And so when we look out and see dead objects or things for us to manipulate, it's very different from looking out at a landscape or a world where there is life all around with its own directionality and intention and blah, 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 even if it's a washing machine or a bicycle chain. And I also think it changes how we understand what God is because because uh, I, I was recently talking to one of my new heroes, Ilya Delio, who's a theologian, and she talks about God really as relationship, and that when you are a subject looking out as an active agent into the world and you only see objects, then there is no space for God. But if there is a subject looking at a subject that's coming back to you, then there's a quality of relationship, which she talks about as God, that is possible, that makes all new things possible. And so... There is something really interesting about like, yeah, especially in a magical world where there are items that have their own will, like maybe the definition of what is alive is much, much more complex than we have understood in our world or in the wizarding world. One thing that we have to talk about before we wrap up this conversation about healing is Bertha Jorkins, because there yeah. is no greater unhealing than forgetting about someone. Mm. And there just seems to be this like choice of Ludo Bagman that is not, that is at least backed up through inaction by the ministry to just not care that this person has gone missing. And yeah, that's irreparable, right? Like to feel forgotten in any way is 
irreparable, but we also know that Bertha is, has been killed by Voldemort. Well, it feels like this perfectly illustrates the limitations of a healing model that only relies on the person themselves, because Ludo and all the people in the ministry are like, oh, she's just gotten lost. She's ended up in Australia, not Albania. Ha 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 ha. And, and so it's like, yeah, like healing by yourself isn't sufficient. Like we do need help, right? She does. I mean, at this point she's already dead, but like she would have needed people to come and find her. And so there's this gap. The, the, the limitation of, like, heal yourself, I guess, is what I'm seeing in that analogy, as well as the reality of, of Bertha's actual death. Yeah, for sure. And it just it just disturbs me. I feel like, you know, Casper, a lot of your work talks about the epidemic of loneliness, and it feels like the worst-case scenario yeah, with loneliness totally. is that there's no one— Right? Like, if Peter is 20 minutes late, I start worrying, right? Yes. He's gotten into a bike accident. Yes. Do I have to start driving the roads to look for him? Yeah. And so he, you know, obviously he, he could get injured in any number of ways, but I, I feel like I, I would notice pretty quickly. And same for, like, in concentric circles, sort of all, all of my friends and family. And just this idea that there's a single woman that, like, yeah. no one notices, and then the people who do notice are like make up this story, right? The Australia story is completely yeah. made up. <laughs> yeah. That was my first thought too, is like, well, what about her family? What about her friends? Why is no one? Yeah. And that's, that's too real for so many people. Yeah. And like, you don't, there's no healing, right? There are just certain things that there's no yeah. healing. It's happened and it's just happened. And all there is is dealing with the fact that it happened. Yeah. I think it takes it back to your story, Casper, which is, you know, the idea that you can arrive at a stronger place, that you can arrive, mm. you can't necessarily replace what was broken, but the thing that you can arrive at is is something that has value or that you can draw life from, that ends at some point, mm. right? There are there are limits to that and some things you can't go back from, some things that remain broken. And that birth is one of the first that we see so explicitly in this series of novels. So this week's spiritual practice is one of my favorites, and we are returning to the practice of sacred imagination. And as you may know by now, this is inspired by St. Ignatius of Loyola, who would invite his uh, spiritual directees to imagine themselves into a gospel story. So I'm going to read a little passage from the very end of the chapter out loud, and Matt and Vanessa and anyone who's safely listening and able to do so, I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes and transport yourself into this scene. And as ever, I want you to try and notice the sight and the sound and the smell and the touch and the taste, all the different senses that you experience, and tell us whose perspective you're noticing this scene from. So here we go. Mr. Weasley conjured up candles to light the darkening garden before they had their pudding, homemade strawberry ice cream. And by the time they had finished, moths were fluttering low over the table, and the warm air was perfumed with the smells of grass and honeysuckle. Harry was feeling extremely well-fed and at peace with the world as he watched several gnomes sprinting through the rose bushes, laughing madly and closely pursued by Crookshanks. Ron looked carefully up the table to check that the rest of the family were all busy talking. Then he said very quietly to Harry, So, have you heard from Sirius lately? Hermione looked around, listening closely. Yeah, said Harry softly, twice. He sounds okay. I wrote to him the day before yesterday. He might write back while I'm here. 
he suddenly remembered the reason he had written to Sirius, and for a moment was on the verge of telling Ron and Hermione about his scar hurting again, and about the dream which had awoken him. But he really didn't want to worry them just now, not when he himself was feeling so happy and peaceful. Well, I'm so curious, what did you notice in this passage? We're recording at about the same time of year that this takes place. And I feel like I've mm. taken some lovely vacations to some beautiful places this summer. I've been very lucky to do that. And I feel like I've had this dinner, right? Like with folks someplace. And I I, the, I think the sensation in the spirit of the sacred imagination, the sensation I felt like I could just feel the warm air mm. on my skin. You know, like the like late summer air, evening air when it's been a hot day, but it's starting to get a little bit more comfortable in the evening. And you, those scents kind of arise out of the grass when you're eating outside just like is described in the passage, I could really feel the air, but also like feel this this tension because I do hear in this passage Harry suppressing this fear that's in him, right? Which which I don't mm-hmm. think is healing. I mean, something's been restored. Something that, that he's wanting at the Dursleys is obviously the sense of family and fellowship is given back to him and he is made whole in that in that classical healing sense. And he is restored and made stronger in the sense that we've been talking about but for the sake of those feelings which he wants to preserve, he's also kind of suppressing this other thing which has not been resolved, which is the fact that his scar was hurting intensely and he had this vision, this terrifying vision to open this book. So that tension there is something that really struck me and something about the yeah, something about the feeling of the warm air and just my own recent memory of of having mm. gatherings like this in the summer evening is is what came to mind for me. Did you experience the scene from any particular perspective? I imagine myself at the dinner but not as one of the characters, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The narration itself inhabits different perspectives in that passage, mostly with Harry, but also like a more general third-person perspective. But I just kind of felt like a person at the table, right? Like as if I'd been invited to dinner too and was eavesdropping on what Harry and Ron were saying or whatever. Yeah. You're sort of a Banquo ghost figure, perhaps. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> How about you, Vanessa? What What did you notice? I very much hairy. I think that the line that like put me in his body was he was feeling extremely well fed Hmm. and how that sort of puts him in his body. We know that for the summer he's been sort of starved and then had to sneak up to his room to eat birthday cake for sustenance. And and this is just like a, a healthy, full, decadent meal that was prepared with love and uh like you, Matt, I felt like the cool summer evening air sort of on my face and the joyful, you know, feeling of being one of the quiet ones at the table who's like watching people be happy. And like, that is part of the fun. And, you know, having my two best friends on either side of me. And Casper, you and I were having a version of this conversation recently that I think that sometimes too much opulence Mm. makes me sad. I'm like, we're enjoying this and people are suffering. And like, it just feels like gross to me. I'm like, we don't need a crystal chandelier. And yet there are these places that are so beautiful and peaceful. We, you know, we belong to a local pond um, for residents of our town. And it is just a place that I feel, you know, like what Perry says, like, I just feel at peace when I'm there. And there's something about that. It's a, a moment of absolute peace in a world that you know is chaos. And like Crookshanks is there in the background chasing gnomes and Sirius is on the lamb. And so you find out that there are these horrible things and like war is brewing in the background. Bertha Jorkins is missing. But in this moment, Harry just feels at peace. 
And I feel like these are the memories that are going to sustain him as he's on the road in book seven. And just that feeling of like, it reminded me of how I feel at my pond of like, just Mm. isn't this lovely. That's so beautiful. It's also what's in the text. You know, he didn't want to worry them just now, not when he himself was feeling happy and peaceful. So I don't see him like pushing it down. It's more just an acknowledgement of like, in this moment, right, for this, like he's going to tell them later, at least in that moment, I think is his intention. Yeah. But it's like a reprieve or it's a, I don't know. I think you're right. It's not suppression. Suppression is the wrong word. I don't think he's denying the reality of it. Mm. He's just not letting that reality deny the present reality of real comfort, of real joy and support and love, Mm. right? Like to turn his attention entirely to his fear or to what had just happened to him would be to erase what's exactly in front of him, which is also real and also deserves his attention, right? There's this great moment from Camus' book, The Plague, mm. the, the novel The Plague, which maybe some of our listeners read in the last couple of years, given yeah. global pandemic circumstances. So it's in the middle of The Plague, and two of the central characters in the novel, Rieu and Taru, are going for a swim, right? And they go for a swim out in the water. And I can't remember who looks at the other one, but one of them looks at the other one and the other one smiles at him. Mm. And the narrator says that it was, a, it was a smile that would deny nothing, not even murder, right? So it's like a smile which is aware of how mm. grim things are in this city, which is consumed by plague, aware of human violence and loss, but also not willing to let the reality of all that deny the goodness of what these two friends were sharing in this moment, which is a night swim together mm. and a moment of like peace and joy, right? And yeah, I think, and maybe we're guilty of this, Vanessa, on this podcast sometimes, I think that we have this tendency to kind of look to look to where hurt is and look to where suffering is, right? Because we don't want to turn away from it, right? But, but we also can't turn away from all the goodness and richness and joy that's, that's in us. And there can be a tendency to focus so much on the one that we don't allow ourselves to enjoy or to admit and enjoy the reality of the other. Yeah. Casper, who are you in the scene? Well, I'm feeling a little emotional about it all because I, I really identified with Ron And suddenly, Matt, what you're saying helps me understand even more Ron's departure in book seven. First of all, because Mm. this gives us such a rich taste of his home life and how much, you know, for him, it is such a safe place and a place where he, you know, feels connected and belonging and all the things. But also because what they really struggle to do as a trio is to have those moments of finding something really simple to enjoy while they're on the run. Mm. Like there is hardly any place, time, safety, capacity for that kind of sweet smile while swimming, you know, mostly because of the external circumstance, but also maybe because they're not yet practiced at finding or noticing them in the midst of the most horrific situations, which who can blame them, right? They're teenagers. But it, I just really, I really felt for Ron. And, you know, we're hearing this description of grass and honeysuckle and rose, like those are the smells of the summer evening around the burrow. But for Ron, that's just the smell of home. It's his baseline. It's his foundations, which he's going to miss so much when when he's gone. So, yeah, that I think it's a really beautiful passage where we get to we get to see such a rich cast of characters. Thank you. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now we have a voice memo from one of our listeners. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and Ariana. In this voicemail, I would like to bless Madam Pence for bringing information to the students at Hogwarts. She is always in the background, giving the students a resource to rely on. She is barely acknowledged, but her library helps Harry survive numerous times. Without Madam Pence, Hermione wouldn't have figured out the Sorcerer's Stone in Book 1, the Basilisk in Book 2, Hippogriff Trials in Book 3, and Harry would never have stood a chance against the Triwizard Tournament in Book 4. I would also like to thank everyone involved with the podcast for being my own, and most likely many others, Madam Pence. You've brought a new way of thinking and seeing the world into my life, and with each episode, you open my eyes to something new about how we live, just like what Madam Pence does for the students of Hogwarts. So, a blessing for you, Madam Pence, and every other person who brings new ideas to others. Thank you. Thank you for this lovely voice memo and for remembering Madame Pince. We were just talking about how the grim circumstances of the world cannot overwhelm the reality of the good of the world, too. And a lot of that good is just in the ordinary acts of of folks like like librarians and others who help who help people acquire knowledge and learn more. I don't know. I'm I'm doing a lot of literary referencing today, but I couldn't help thinking during this voicemail of the last line of Middlemarch. This line is referring to the kind of central character of Middlemarch, whose name is Dorothea Brooke. And the line says, The effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. 
So all the good acts of a normal life, they make the world better, right? And Madame Pins is not a, like a, a character who is who's valorized throughout this series, but as our caller reminds us, the everyday acts of her work as a librarian are part of what made a successful resistance possible and what allowed the the triumph over Voldemort. Yes, thank you so much for this really beautiful voicemail. Thank you to librarians everywhere. Now is the time when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Tom Conroy, 87, a very special grandpa. David Andrew Grimes, 94, a veteran, grandfather of 11, and an avid jokester. Marilyn, 96, the most adventurous Nana. Mr. W, 85, a patient of one of our listeners, funny and graceful. Kayla Russ, 23, amazing and one of a kind. Sonia Ritter, 61, a poet who is faithful and fearless. Sophie Blanton, 20, who was brave, kind, smart, with the mouth of a pirate. Torge Dale, 70, a father, grandfather, favorite uncle, and forever an optimist. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Casper, who are you blessing this week? My blessing is for Pigwidgeon, because I feel very connected to this moment for Pigwidgeon. Pigwidgeon got a nickname, Pig, which I feel like was not a great nickname. It could have been Pigeon or Pidgey or Widge. And I want to bless Pigwidgeon and everyone who deserves better nicknames, including me. Um, Why? Do you not like when we get a good What's your nickname? Well, that's fine. But like, I want to be called like a 19th century English boarding school girl whose name might be Sophie, but everyone calls her Coco. I just, it, it, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. want a name that has nothing to do with my name, but comes out of a shared experience. So like, I don't know, e- even Pidgey Widgey isn't that good. But like, Little would be a good nickname for Pig. You know what I mean? So anyway, my blessing is for Pigwidgeon. And um, let us hope that people are more creative in giving us nicknames that are personable and meaningful. I would like to bless Molly for this moment at the very end of the chapter where she says, Harry, if you leave out your school list, I'll get your things for you tomorrow in Diagon Alley. I'm getting everyone else's. There might not be time. And again, it's just like, it's so generous and thoughtful and planful. And she has to go to Gringotts to get his money probably. And it's probably a permission form for that that she probably had to email Dumbledore, email (laughs) that she probably had to message Dumbledore for. And like, I don't know, this is just like a, she presents it as I'm going anyway. It's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. And it's probably really hard. (laughs) And I just love you, Molly. What about you, Matt? I had a list of folks that I was thinking about 
blessing, as I often do. If our listeners can see our, our notes, I always have a list of folks I'm thinking about. But the conversation today just got me thinking about Bertha and how, how, how no one was thinking of Bertha and no one was wondering where Bertha was or worrying enough about where Bertha was. And even if they couldn't have saved her, just there's something of value in that. I mean, something in that there were others missing her and, and longing for her and, and wanting to know what happened to her. So um, that conversation struck me because I also wasn't paying attention to Bertha at the end of this chapter. And so um, for the, the lonely and forgotten and for Bertha, that's my blessing. Next week, we're reading book four, chapter six, The Port Key, through the theme of insight. So Vanessa is going to tell us an insightful story about one of her great insights. A couple of announcements before we give our thanks. We have a Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage that's on sale right now. Matt and I are going on a little tour. We are going to Denver, Colorado. We are doing a show here in Somerville, Massachusetts. You can find out more about all of that at harrypottersacredtext.com and notsorryworks.com. And of course, we have summer camp coming up. Summer 2023. It's going to be a party. Come to camp. Come to camp. This was a Not Sorry production, a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited and produced by AJ Aramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to the listener who sent in a voice memo this week. Thanks also to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, Casper Terkyle, the wonderful, the amazing... And thanks to everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. Thanks for having me, you guys. I miss you. Thanks for coming Thanks, Casper. Thanks, Vanessa. We love you. <laughs> Why did my mom put me in shoulder pads at nine? They, they looked good back then. That was the thing. She was training you to be a little production company CEO. She was like, <laughs> I will sell this house today. <laughs>